You're now listening to episode 107 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli joined here today with Mark Hamilton, CEO, and Ashley Kabil, CFO of Hamilton Zans. Hamilton Zans specializes in the pursuit, acquisition, and hands-on operations of apartment communities in select target markets throughout the United States. In today's episode, we discuss Hamilton Zan's approach to multifamily value-add investing, integrating property management, reducing expenses through green initiatives, performing 1031 exchanges as a syndication group, key performance indicators, and much more. Hey everyone, we want to let you know about a new podcast we're releasing today called The Staying Power Podcast. This is a podcast that will explore the challenges business owners face as they grow. Together, Brandon Hall and I asked the tough questions to show you that running a business is not for the faint at heart, but if you have the staying power, you'll overcome your challenges and achieve lasting success. Subscribe to the Staying Power Podcast today on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts can be found. We hope you'll love this new podcast just as much as the Real Estate CPA Podcast. However, for right now, we'll jump right into today's episode. Mark, Ashley, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Could you give our listeners a little information on your backgrounds? We'll go ahead and start with Mark. Of course, Thomas. Thank you. Once upon a time, way before you guys had feet on the ground, in the early 80s, I was an aspiring writer and thought I would be a a university instructor and uh, did some preparation for that. And then it was clear it wasn't going to be a fit for me. And along the way, I had spent some time kind of accidentally in a real estate shop. And when I came back from uh, graduate school, I went back to the same shop. And eventually, uh, the fellow who was my boss at the time uh, and I and my wife started buying small fixer-upper properties in San Francisco uh, in the 80s, which you could still do without going into massive debt. And we just fell in love with it. So for the last 35 years, doing value-add multifamily property has been front and center in my career. And I've been really lucky to work with people like Ashley and Nicole. Um, I mean, I guess you could say I found my, my true love and it's, it's been my career for the last 35 years. Awesome. Thank you for the overview. Uh, Ashley, would you be able to share a little bit about your background? Yeah. So uh, mine's a little bit different than Mark. So when I graduated college, uh, I started at a big four accounting firm, got my CPA license uh, and decided to go back to school during uh, the Great Recession because I did not want to be an accounting manager or controller or whatnot. Um, And my dad, actually, when I was looking for my internship between my first and second year, uh, had recommended that I learn about real estate. My dad has long time been an investor in real estate. He has worked with Mark and Tony and Kurt for a long time, actually invested with Hamilton and Zance and some of the early deals. And so I took an interview and I jumped in and I was an intern and that was 10 years ago. And here I am. So my dad obviously knew something that I would love real estate and, and I truly do. And uh, it's been a, been a journey for these past 10 years. Nice. Nice. Could you give us a brief overview of the history of Hamilton Zans um, and the first market you were in versus where you are today, both in terms of size and markets? 
Thank you. So as I mentioned earlier, I cut my teeth in San Francisco. And uh, that lasted for almost 15 years. Uh, it became harder and harder over time uh, to find worthwhile things to do in San Francisco because pricing and the, you know, the cost of getting into an acquisition just kept going up and returns kept going down. And along the way, I decided to start working in Oakland and one other market in the East Bay. And so I'd been doing that for probably two or three years when the year 2000 came along. And Tony Zanz, unbeknownst to me, whom I did not know at the time, was doing a variation of that with his father and a friend. And, you know, my career was not designed to be a career in finance or investments or one thing or another. And it, it just ended up being a love affair that didn't stop. And I was really just digging around for opportunities and staying close to the markets and making it work that way. Uh, Tony's pedigree is completely different. Tony has a master's degree in real estate from the University of Wisconsin. And before he got that, he worked at Cushman Wakefield. Um, after getting his MBA, he went to work at Northwest Mutual uh, doing equity and debt. And from there, he ran the West Coast Lending Office of GE Capital. And from there, he went to REIF, the Ro Rosenberg Real Estate Equity Fund, and certainly had, you know, just off the charts aptitudes, you know, more than everything you'd want from an institutional real estate guy and aptitudes in finance, as I said, my skill set and disposition were different. Mine, mine was about being very hands-on. And Tony had gotten into this portfolio with his father and another partner, and they were kind of mystified by what it really took to be a hands-on operator and rolling up your sleeves in Oakland. Now Oakland's called Brooklyn by the Bay, but back then it was called Oakland. And, you know, I just, I loved the, the gritty part of it. And uh, lo and behold, he proposed that we become partners. And as far as I was concerned, it was a dream made in heaven. I thought he was going to be giving up too much career-wise for something that I saw as being speculative. I, I knew what I was going to do if it didn't work out. I, I was a little concerned for him, but that was 19 years ago. And just by you know blending our skill sets and staying really close to the real estate and being kind of opinionated amongst ourselves about when it was time to move to a different market to look for better better yields, we just gradually started going to other places. And, and Tony brought one other unique attribute to our partnership that I certainly would never have had. And that was the idea that you could use an airplane to go, you know, you could use a commercial airplane, you could book a ticket on United and go look at real estate. And I don't know that I ever would have done that. And he had spent his career doing that. So when it came time to start looking in other markets, for him, it was just like rolling out of bed. Whereas for me, I always thought I had to have a steering wheel in my hand to do my job. And, you know, we started going to Washington State. And then as other great people came into the organization, we just stayed with that ideology that we were going to work markets hard um, one by one until we could no longer find what we wanted and then look for the next market. And as we were discussing earlier, that's kind of what we've done. And I'm sure Ashley will say more about it during this call. But we've just gradually gone east one metro market or one state at a time. And we have a pretty good footplate at this point. We have uh, meaningful holdings in the central time zone, uh, meaningful holdings in the south, and meaningful holdings uh, in the eastern seaboard. Uh, but our ideology has always been about returns, finding returns. How has your investing methodology criteria changed over time? And what's your approach today? So uh, historically, you know, when Mark and Tony started the company, we were garden style value add shop. So suburban properties, you know, started in the Bay Area, as Mark said, but then started to expand. So that that truly is still a big part of who we are. But 
we've you know taken our equity and we've grown, right? So we're on a national platform right now across the United States. We're still looking for value add. That value add may be you know a combination of capex value add. So we're doing unit upgrades that have direct impact on our EGI. It could also be value add and management upside, right? So Mark Tony and Kurt started a property management company back in 2011, and so maybe we think we can bring better value add on the management side. But that that true value add concept is still here. Um, spending time at the real estate, getting to know it, implementing a business plan. So where we were investing only in garden style apartments, we've kind of moved into core plus. We're looking at new lease up deals, but but that true value add concept hasn't gone anywhere. How did the 0789 crisis affect your approach to investing in real estate? And were you more prepared for the current COVID situation, even though it kind of came out of nowhere? as a result of any changes you made back in 08-09? I wasn't there at Hamilton and Zan, so I can't can't say I came in right towards the end. But I can say that over the past seven years, we've taken the time to reposition our entire portfolio. So I feel, and Mark can chime in, that we were better prepared for this COVID crisis than we were back in 07 and 08 when the Great Recession hit. Our properties are more stable, right? We have newer assets Mm -hmm. that are weathering the storm a little bit better. We've actually done fairly well during this COVID crisis. We worked closely with Mission Rock to make sure our tenants can pay rent or have a payment plan. But yeah, so over the past 78 years, we took a hard look at our portfolio, whether it be geographically or size of the property or average you know, EGI per unit. And we kind of have this informal framework that we follow now when we're looking at whether we want to keep an asset and assets that we're also buying to put us in the best position um, kind of when this storm hit. But Mark can probably add a little bit more about, about the first recession. That was really well said. And your question is instructive. And I think I mentioned earlier that Tony and I became partners in 2000. It was actually 2001. Uh, we had the pleasure of sitting across desks from each other on 9-11-2001. And I was a little concerned for his sake. But let's face it, the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of episodes and sometimes cataclysms. In 2001, Tony and I did our first deal. It was a 16-unit building in Oakland that we paid $1,150,000 for. We were really happy to get it. And it was it was kind of the lower edge of the range of stuff that we were working on at the time, but it was it seemed like a great opportunity. Um, and between 2001, where we did a million one fifty at the end of that year, and 2006, our deal flow had gone up to uh, excuse me, our acquisition flow had gone up to about 350 million. So it, you know it proved out the concept of what two different aptitude sets could really bring to an organization and to a real estate shop. And then in, in 2007, we did the same thing. We did another 350 million. And in 2008, we knew it was going to be different. By the end of 2007, things were getting weird in the debt markets and CMBS were seizing up. And you know, we knew we were going to have to batten down the hatches in 2008. And we did less than half of the deal flow uh, in 2008 that we had done in 2007. We still liked what we got. But obviously, we were going to have to make adjustments. And then in 2009, I think in 2008, we did the same number of transactions, same number of acquisitions that we had done in 2007, but at less than half the dollar volume. And in 2009, we did four transactions. And we got great deals. But again, you know, things were running thin. And so, you know, we had to learn how to do the nastiness of downsizing a company and laying off, you know, good people, people who had been really helpful to the organization. And we went from 26 people down to 17. I think that's right. 
But as Ashley mentioned, in the years coming out of that, we were very deliberate about what we wanted to do and what we thought we needed to do. And we really doubled down on buying bigger assets, newer assets, more urban infill assets, assets that were going to derive more of the benefit to our organization would be derived from uh, scheduled income um, if perhaps we were going to be able to collect lower fees for project management or, or disposition fees or promotes. But in 2010, 2011, we really shifted hard to more of a scheduled income model. And so at this point in time, as Ashley mentioned, we've, we've incubated some other organizations with great partners that we have. And Tony and I got a third partner whose name is Kurt Haukuber, and that was in the middle of the 2000s. And we've just really gone hard after scheduled income. So we're 50 people instead of 26 people. And so far, you know, it's, it's not a dream come true of a year. But as Ashley said, we're treading water. We're doing okay. We're stable. And uh, we haven't done any layoffs. Um, we hope that we can get through this time without any layoffs. We're, we're contemplating uh, one or two hires. And we've stayed with some of our other programs that are important to us about having high school and college interns in the shop. So, you know, it grows you up, right? Downturns grow you up. The scariest one I ever went through was in the early 90s. And so when 2008 came along, it didn't seem to me that it was going to be as bad from a household income standpoint for us, but it was still bad. And, and at this point in time, this cataclysm is something that we seem to be digesting tolerably. So you've both mentioned that you shifted towards newer assets. Can you tell us what newer means and why are you focusing on newer assets? Yeah, so so we define newer as 30 years or younger. So the year is 2020 right now. So we'd like to be around 1990s vintage. And so that moves moves every year. Um, we like that newer vintage. You're look um just from an efficiency standpoint, your expense ratios are typically lower. On your older properties, there, you know, there's more master systems, there may be boiler system. We want kind of more efficient assets that we can run where we're not gonna have a huge expense ratio. And I think that leads into some of the work that we do on the value add side of what we can implement to, to keep those ratios down. But but the way that we define vintage is is 30 or newer, 30 years or newer. And I think that kind of leads into another question that we had here, and that was uh so what are the most popular or most profitable value add strategies that you apply to the properties you're currently acquiring? Yeah. So typically we're looking, the biggest profit ad is going to be our unit upgrades. We're always looking to see if there's some bump that we can do by going into the unit and, and upgrading the unit. We're also looking at amenities, right? When you when you go tour an apartment, the first thing you're looking at is the swimming pool, the business center, the lounge area, the fitness center. And so we want to make sure that the amenities within the market that we're operating in are, are top notch to kind of grab those tenants as we can. Um, and then the unit upgrades. So installing hard counter hard surface countertops, you know, vinyl flooring, stuff like that is going to have the biggest bump. We also focus a lot on green items as well. So, you know, they may not be value add in terms we can charge more in terms of rent, but it'll save us on the expense side. So we're always looking at, at green value add items as well. How quickly do you turn units? In terms of renovation or mm-hmm. our average turnover rate? Renovation, uh, usually two to three weeks if we can get timing right, but it's always managing vendors, right? So just depending on, you know, and the scope of the renovation, right? So I guess I'll give myself a range of two weeks to, you know, a month if we're doing more hard counter surfaces, stuff that needs to be custom, but 
Mission Rock, which is the property management company, has a pretty well dialed in unit renovation program, right? So we're not go when we when we buy a property and we're doing our due diligence, we're not coming up with a unit upgrade scope from nothing, right? There's a playbook of paint colors that we like to use and countertops that we like to use. So we know the products that we're going to implement. It's just finding the vendor in that area that we can utilize. We recently interviewed Ellie Perlman and uh, she's a sponsor of a lot of these different syndicates that are out there. And she said that she can turn units over in a week and a half to two weeks on the rehab. And so my parents listened to that episode, right? My parents own some real estate. My, my dad's been working on it. My mom like listens to that. And she's like, are you kidding me? You need to work harder. So it's good to hear that you guys are also in that ballgame. So dad, mom, if you guys are listening to this, dad needs to step up his game. <laughs> so well, I, I think... I, I think it's also important to maintain sanity. I mean, certainly you can blow and go. Um, if you have resources waiting to go, there's a cost that goes along with that. And we found that we benefit by having line of sight as much as possible on virtually every aspect of our business. So while it may, as Ashley said, well, it may take us only two to three weeks to turn a unit, we're going to have an idea of a program that's going to probably run for 18 to 24 months to execute our unit renovation strategy. And the other thing that we try to avoid is, you know, we try to avoid whiplash uh, for the residents. Of course, there's always going to be, you know, there's going to be stuff going on when we're doing our, our heavy lifting and the early going. But I think it's fair to say that we will almost always offer a tenant a renewal when their lease comes up. And if they move on, you know, they may not like the new price, but for those that move, that's when we do the unit turns. So I can already hear my parents arguing about the the unit renovation strategy that you just mentioned there, but that's good. That'll be a fun Thanksgiving conversation. So you mentioned green components as you're rehabbing the the units. You're you're implementing these green components. Our question is: Do the green initiatives actually save any money? Yeah, so some more than others, right? So LED lighting retrofits have an immediate impact to bottom line. So that I would say that's the best one that we're doing. So any lighting, we're, we're moving towards LED lighting, both in the units and within all the common areas. Other ones that we look at are windows and installations, right? If we're buying an older property and they're single pane windows, we are going to take a serious hard look at installing new windows and sliders because that's going to have an impact. It may not necessarily be to us as the property owners, but it's going to be to our tenants who are paying those utility bills, right? And so the lower we can bring those, more likely that they're going to stay and want to rent with us and there's not huge fluctuations in, in their water bills. Another thing that we look at hard is water usage. So during our business plan development, we're going to look at the landscaping around the property. Can we add more zeroscaping, more landscaping that's friendly on the water usage sides? And that's going to have an immediate impact for us. We're also going to look at ACs, right? We don't want 30-year-old AC units that are cranking as hard as they can to cool down those units. We might install more efficient ones. So those are the kind of the big things. It's hard to measure some of the stuff. So LED, I'd say, is the easily measurable one. But the other ones, you know, do have an impact. It's just harder for us to quantify. Well, I was just about to ask you, like, how do you underwrite all of that? Like, how do, how do you look at a property and say, oh, if I update these components with green components, then I know that I'm going to increase the NOI by X, or I know that my tenants are going to reduce their spend by Y. How do you... How do you underwrite that? How do you come to that conclusion? That's a good question. We actually don't typically underwrite that savings. That's usually cream on top for our underwriting, right? It's a hard assumption to make. We can't say that in a year, if we install all LED lighting, we're going to save $40 per unit on electricity. So it's not an assumption that we're willing yet to bake into our pro formas. And so if the deal works, 
you know, with the utilities, you know, with growth rates, whatnot, and we do the deal, we're going to do it. We're going to implement those green things. And then we'll see the bottom line impact. Um, It's especially harder for our residents. The way that we look at that is, you know, are we getting less complaints for huge utility bill fluctuations? Is the reason for move out, you know, because my utility bill is too high, is that going down, right? There's a property that comes to mind in Colorado Springs that Mark's going to know right away where we redid the windows at that property. Um, and we fought tooth and nail to do that with our investors because we had so many people saying we are moving out because our utility bills during the winter skyrocket. And so we had a huge backdoor at that property. And as soon as we fixed those windows, we knew that that would have an impact on our bottom line, not only by utility bills going down, but Keeping residents is easier than continuing to turn that unit, right? We want people to stay at our apartments. Um, and so, you know, majority of that benefit went, went to our residents. I think another way to look at that, and mm-hmm. Ashley was spot on, but I, I think another way to look at that is, uh, and you probably gleaned this from what she said, is that when we're doing our underwriting going into acquisition, that's pretty fierce. And it, it happens relentlessly. We probably revise the underwriting once or twice a week as new information comes in. And we don't go to sleep at that switch. And so the business plan and the CapEx will be fully baked into each other and into the acquisition. That said, there's usually a little bit of opportunity for for tucking some money away somewhere or using savings to pursue the green initiatives. So most of the green stuff is going to be at least contemplated and factored up front, even if it's not priced. Uh, She's right. We do like to, to have some hidden upside if we can have it. But the other thing is, is that as we go, if we're a few years downhill already from our business plan and something comes up that we want to do, we do our best to manage cash flow to maintain reserves, to have, have the wherewithal to do that. And in some cases, like the property that Ashley mentioned in Colorado Springs, we had already refinanced that and returned all of the investor capital. So it was cash flowing magnificently. And it was just going to be, it was, as she said, it was just going to be icing on the cake. It was going to be something better still that we could do. And we did have a problem of, of tenants saying enough of these high utility bills, I'm going to move somewhere else. So we spent money to do the windows and lo and behold, people stayed put and took rent increases. And it was a, it was a fantastic success all the way around. Awesome. So kind of switching gears just a little bit, when it comes to property managers, I know you have properties uh, across the country. How do you end up uh, dealing with property managers and, and develop relationships with the property managers? And also, is it more frequent that you change property management or do you kind of work with the same groups over and over again? So yeah, so as I had mentioned, so Mark, Tony, and Kurt in 2011, 2012 uh, started along with Pat Hutchison um, Mission Rock Residential, which is a property management company that's based in Colorado. So common ownership they manage all of our properties now. Previous to that, we were using multiple management companies depending on where each property was located geographically. Now that we have Mission Rock, you know, we know we are going to use them as our partner in implementing business plan and managing the properties. And so there's a very close relationship between Hamilton's Ants and Mission Rock. So they are involved from day one, right? They're out there doing due diligence with us on every new acquisition, um, doing the lease audit, putting together a CapEx plan in conjunction with, you know, our construction team at Hamilton and Zance. Um, once the deal closes, you know, that's just when the work is beginning for both our asset management team at Hamilton and Zance and the property management team. So uh, very close relationships. Our asset managers are working with regional managers in the area, you know, on a daily basis, um, managing. And so it was really important for us. um, And, you know, we've seen a great benefit in working with Mission Rock, right? Because there is 
you know, we're one, we're on one accounting platform right now, right? So all of our financials are held in one system instead of different systems, depending on who our management company is. But it's also, they know everything that we do, right? We're all working towards the same goal. They know the business plan. They've helped develop it in terms of building out the CapEx budget. They know what we're looking for in terms of value add. You know, we do takeover meetings for every property so that the property manager is aware, right? Mark and Tony and Kurt have built this company where they want to empower the people at the property, right? They're there every day. They're our eyes and our ears. They're going to know more about that property than we are while we're sitting in San Francisco. So we have to rely on them, you know, to tell us the bad news, tell us what we missed. And so I think having that honesty and that relationship has really helped in terms of our management of all of our portfolio. Um, and so I think that's how we build up their involved in in every step of the process. It's interesting and instructive to look at it that way. Back in the day, I I was a little skittish about the idea of of forming a management company. Fortunately, my partners prevailed on me. Uh, My wife has run her own management company for more than 20 years in the Bay Area. And it's hard work. Property management is hard work. And it's not necessarily a gigantic profit center. So, you know, my hesitancy was, you know, why I live with that. I know what that's like. Why do we want to do that? Um, What was compelling about it was the opportunity for us to continue to evolve best practices and have them be consistent from side to side to cultivate, hire and train really good people and be responsible for creating long term upside to incentivize them to stay. Then there's the aspect of full integration of the financials. The financials are seamless. Uh, and that's something that Ashley obviously knows very well. But the other thing we, we knew when we were running with shops that were true third party was that if it wasn't working out, right, we knew that we could just replace them, right? We'd go find somebody else. And so I felt like I, that was good because our hands weren't tight, right? We weren't stuck with a manager. But the truth of the matter is by the time you get ready to replace a manager, something has already gone wrong. And it's usually gone wrong. It's usually not one thing. Uh, It's usually gone on for a period of months. And so it becomes expensive. It became very expensive to maintain that prerogative because as we saw with Mission Rock, when you're really integrated and you have a motivated team and everybody's on the same page, it's just a lot easier to have line of sight. And you don't have as much of a revolving door on your site staffs either, which was a common problem that some of our best people the third-party managers would take them and put them on other sites, and there's nothing we could do about it. So it's just control, and I don't know if it's control, it's influence for sure. And it's definitely much better from the standpoint of sharing information and, and everybody knowing what the program is. Makes a lot of sense. And kind of just following up on all of that, we understand that usually in the syndication model or in, in, in the type of model you guys run, the property management firm usually has the relationships with the contractors and the construction teams on the ground that are going to go ahead and do the renovations and the repairs and the maintenance and all that. Uh, would you be able to talk a little about how you guys handle those types of relationships? Real estate is a local business. And if you don't throw your arms around that and really grasp it, you're going to have headaches, especially with multifamily. You've got 365 days of lease security on any tenant. And then after that, they can move. You might have 30 days of lease security if somebody's coming up on the end of their lease. So keeping the property well cared for is hugely important. And it's local, right? And so Mission Rock has done an outstanding job of going market by market to build local teams. We provide staff with an opportunity to transplant if they are seeking that. But otherwise, we're recruiting from local markets. So we stay local. And you're absolutely right, Thomas, that those those resources are embedded in the minds and computers and Rolodexes 
of the people who are working in those markets. And so I learned ages ago that having reliable tradespeople, which in that time was mostly subcontractors, but having reliable tradespeople is everything. Because if you have something that needs to get done, you have a need to know that it's going to be done. And I think it was telling that in, in the downturn, and the last downturn was immediately impactful to top line and was impactful in a negative way to top line for quite a long time. And you can't fight a marketplace. If people are going to pay less, they're going to find a place to pay less. And so what we opted to do was to do our best to keep great people at the sites, to keep the sites well cared for and looking well. And then we met the market. And if, you know, if the pricing had moved, we met the market because we wanted to stay full. And so by doing that, our NOI didn't really change, uh, certainly didn't change catastrophically, and it didn't change as much as we might have worried because people didn't move. You know, that's what I'm, I'm digressing now, but that's what we saw. Is that in a scary time, people don't want to move. Unless you give them an excuse to move, they're going to stay put. And so taking care of the real estate is extremely valuable. And Mission Rock has not only a great staff, um, we've designed Mission Rock so that our portfolio gets extra supervision on the bricks and mortar. Uh, we really believe in that. And they have great staff, a great executive team, and great regional teams that take care of that. And I, I think that's a real area of strength for us. And we're not afraid to spend to take care of the real estate as long as we're getting good value. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we do want to shift gears just a little bit. We've talked a lot about relationships, property management, but we are an accounting and tax podcast. So we do have to ask some accounting and tax questions. So what are your favorite tax strategies that you use in your acquisitions and your real estates at Hamilton's Ends? Yeah, so I would say it's it's probably three. So 1031 exchanges is the first, cost segregation studies is the second, and then a cash out refinance will be the third. So I'll start with the first 1031 exchanges. So um, our portfolio and our platform and our investors were a 1031 exchange shop, right? So whether it be an investor is selling a property that they've owned and managed for a couple of years, they don't want to do it anymore. They sell it and they come to us and we place it into a property to execute a 1031 exchange same thing when we're selling, you know, within our own portfolio, we're looking to 1031 exchange all of our investors. That money's really sticky, right? A lot of people don't want to pay taxes, but they do want to continue to invest in real estate. So that that 1031 exchange money is is great for us. So that's actually really interesting because we we normally talk to syndicates and they're just like, yeah, we don't 1031, we just sell and then we open up the next deal. Mm -hmm. You guys like embed 1031 into your strategy. How do you talk to investors up front about that. And uh, I mean, I guess I'd be surprised if it wasn't an incredible selling point because I know that a lot of the limited partners would love to just do 1031s, but they get stuck with this liquidation that they can't do anything with. We're upfront with them, right? So when we're when we're investing in deals, we're, we're communicating, this is going to be an illiquid investment for a long time, right? We're, we plan on 1031 exchanging um, single member ticks, right? So investors who come in, we're, we're not managing that partnership. It's, it's their decision, right? So when we sell a property, it's ultimately their choice if they want a 1031 exchange. Uh, I would say a majority of our investors know the strength of a 1031 exchange now, right? And, and see the benefit. Um, it, it, you know, it takes work and there's a lot of nuances with the 1031 exchange, but the fundamental concept of deferring gain and replacing you know, real estate for real estate, our investors get. So when we come to sell a property and we have a partnership and we have investors who want to cash out, maybe there's you know something going on in their life and they want to be liquid, we will cash them out. We will either buy their shares, we'll sell them to another group or whatnot. But besides that, while an investment is active and live, we disclose that it is illiquid, right? We don't plan on 
cashing out anytime soon. We're going to implement our value add plan and, and we're a cash flow shop, right? So our investors are looking for cash flow and the nature of real estate investment is it's, it's passive, right? And so those distributions that they're getting every month from us are tax-free distributions right now, right? So it's just going against their capital account that they have. And if we exchange forward, you know, it's a tax-free exchange forward. And so it's a really, really efficient way for investors to diversify their portfolio. And we have a lot of lot of investors who this is their retirement, right? They depend on those checks and and those distributions that we're giving. So it's really important for us to continue to 1031 exchange and grow in that sense. And for anybody who's listening right here, before we go on to the other tax strategies, do you have to be accredited to invest with Hamilton's ends or uh, how does that work? You do. You have to be accredited. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, so second is cost segregation studies. So this comes, you know, right around the time of acquisitions as well. We will engage a third party who will do a cost segregation study for us. And what that does, it allows us to break down our building basis into additional categories. So five-year life, seven-year life, 15-year life, and then your standard building life. And with the tax code as it's written now, you know, we can elect to take that bonus depreciation. So taking an immediate write-off of that five, seven, and 15-year classification of assets. And so that has immediate impact to our investors. You know, if they they aren't, you know, a real estate investor as defined by the IRS code, you know, it's passive. But if they are real estate, active real estate investors, they can take that loss against their ordinary income. So that's that's a pretty powerful tool as well that we use. Um, and so we order those on every single acquisition now that we're doing. Second is refinancing. So, you know, when we're when we're purchasing our deals, we're a long-term debt shop. So we're looking at primarily 10-year debt. Uh, we've gone down to seven and we've gone as high as, you know, 30 plus with a HUD loan. But during, you know, our, our cycle of ownership in the real estate, we're always evaluating refinance options. And this may come up at the same time where we're looking at sale or any sort of capital event for our property. But if we can refinance after we've implemented our value add plan and we've grown the EGI and the NOI, um, and so we can size to a larger debt amount, we're going to look to do a cash out refinance. So replacing the debt that we have, cashing out our equity. So there's no more equity left in the deal. So our investors can go invest that in another deal while continuing the cash flow from that property for our investors. So I'd say those are the the three most powerful strategies that we use at Hamilton and Sands. Uh, incredible. Very, very well done. Now, your, your cycle, your ownership cycle, how long does that typically last? Yeah. So our average hold period right now in our portfolio is 67 months. So just over five years. So again, we put that long-term debt on, but we're continuing to evaluate our property for both you know, strategic sales. Maybe we're not seeing the benefit that we are in this market that we're in. So we're strategically deciding that we're going to exit this market and opportunistic sales, right? We've met our business plan. We've exceeded our pro forma. Maybe there's no more value add left, right? There's nothing else to grow that EGI and NOI. And so we're going to sell and redeploy that money elsewhere. So we're constantly looking at our portfolio and evaluating, but our average hold period is about five, just over five years. And what are your core KPIs, your your key performance indicators that you're looking at when making those decisions? You've mentioned a couple, but what are you kind of looking at across the board to determine liquidation versus cash out refi? Yeah, so I would say cash out refi if it's if it kind of meets those parameters, right? It's thirty years or newer. It's over two hundred units. It's got a thousand dollars per month in in EGI or yeah EGI per unit. 
and we can cash out refinance, I'm going to say majority of the time, we're probably going to make that selection. Um, unless there's other, other factors, there's always other factors. If we're looking at a property that we've met our five-year pro forma, we do five-year underwriting on all of our assets. If we've met our pro forma metrics and you know, we can get the investors, the IRR and the multiple that we communicated and it's ready for us to move, right? It's prime for a set. And this has been a seller's market these past couple of years, right? So, and we can redeploy, um, we will do that. So, you know, our investment committee is going to look asset by asset because our ownership group is different, right? And every asset is different. And so it's not some box that we fit it into, like check these five things and we're automatically going to sell. It's a conversation and a discussion and a lot of analysis that goes into that, that decision. And we're also going to look at what are our options for exchanging right? Uh, if we sell, where can our investors go? You've mentioned EGI uh, quite a few times. Do you mind explaining what that is, how it differs from gross rents and yeah. why it's important? Yeah. So EGI is just effective gross income. So that's just all the income from the property. So rent is obviously a big component of that, but there's other things. There's, you know, utility billbacks that's built into EGI. There's other income. So, you know, damages, app fees, all that other stuff. So we kind of look at it as a, as a bottom line EGI number for all income that we're collecting at the property. And so that informal metric that we're looking at is $1,000 per unit for all income that's coming into the property. And, and we like that benchmark because that's typically the vintage area location that, that we want to be invested in. Nice, nice. Um, when it comes to, to building relationships with your lenders, with your investors, could you just uh, talk about the importance of building long-term relationships with these key parties? Yeah. So, so for our lenders, especially our transactions team is, is constantly in contact with our lenders. Um, it's really important that the lenders understand fully our business, right? We are doing, you know, syndications on every property. We're doing tenant and common interests on every property. It's not the most straightforward way to own real estate. So our lenders are our partners, right? They need to understand how we're going to own the property, how we're going to implement our business plan so that we can get the, you know, the best loan products that are out there for us. So we are now, you know, preferred borrowers for both Fannie and Freddie. And, you know, a lot of that comes from the relationships that we've built with the lenders that we're working with. So, so that's really important. I'll let Mark answer the investor side because, you know, it started off as friends and family and, and we still look at Hamilton's Zans as a friends and family shop. Well, I, I think one thing that, that's going to appeal to to really all the investors is they don't have to sign on the debt. If you're a cash investor, as Ashley mentioned, we take exchange proceeds, we take cash investment, people invest from their retirement accounts and likewise. But that's a question we very frequently get when someone is getting ready or when someone is getting acquainted with us. And it's, you know, do they have to sign on the debt? So with the multi-member LLCs that Ashley mentioned, we might have, I mean, literally, we might have as, as few as 10 to 15 people in an LLC. We might have 150 people in an LLC. And it really just, it depends on how long a partnership has been going. And to what extent it might reflect multiple partnerships that have been consolidated together. But that's one thing that they like. They don't want to have to be underwritten. They don't want to have to sign on the debt. And they don't have to. If they're an exchange investor, they're responsible for their own declarations, right? And, and we all have to sign the, the recourse carve-outs. This debt is almost universally non-recourse debt. Uh, but there are certain things you can't do. You have to indemnify the lender against environmental issues. You have to indemnify the lender against fraud and bankruptcy. And so if you're in an exchange, you do have to sign 
the recourse carve outs, but you're only responsible for your own declarations. And so we just tell people to tell them, you know, you know, you're not going to have any problems as long as you just, as long as you're honest in your declarations. And so what Ashley hinted at is that we're a preferred borrower with both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. On limited occasions, we will use bank or balance sheet financing. Um, infrequently, we will use life insurance debt. But the vast majority of it's Fannie and Freddie. And, you know, it's been a great partnership between us and each of them. And they know what our operating model and our operating strategy looks like. And, and they're just phenomenally helpful having us uh, have these generally hybrid uh, vesting structures. And for the investors, for the most part, it's pretty seamless. We're high service to the tenancy and common investors and to the cash investors. They don't even see the loan docs, which is exactly what they want. Gotcha, gotcha. And if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or learn more about Hamilton Zans, what would be the best way for them to do so? Well, you know, we're out there. You, you'll find us, you know, you, you Google us and find all kinds of stuff. And, you know, from time to time, we get these nice opportunities to actually talk in real time with people. So there are podcasts that are out there. But that aside, I, I would say, and I, I take some pride in this, I think the website does a terrific job of telling the story of the organization, of telling what we do and where we've been and what our rules are that we follow and what we're after. And so I, I would say that that's always a good place to start. And you could always email investor relations at Hamilton Zant, and we'll make sure that we get you know any investor connected to a real person. Uh, truth of the matter is we're not going to take an investor if we don't have an opportunity to speak with them. And, you know, it's always nice when we can meet people in person. Uh, we have about 1,200 investors. And and I would tell you that at least one person in the shop personally knows every one of those investors. And usually it's many of us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time to come on the show today. It's been an excellent episode. Learned a lot of great stuff. And uh, we're looking forward to putting it out there. Well, uh, we're excited. and. And grateful. And, um, you know, if you're ever in California, stop by the shop and we'll introduce you to some other great people. Awesome. We'll have to do that one next time we're out in California. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.